Philippians chapter number 3, we'll begin reading in verse number 7. The Apostle Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul's not being crude. He's simply communicating a point, and there's probably no other way that he could communicate how he genuinely feels about that statement. Verse number 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Verse number 10, this is our text, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Verse number 11, Paul's not saying that I'm feeling this way, thinking this way, or doing these things so that I can attain. He's doing it because of the resurrection of the dead. And so word meanings are very important for uh, Bible understanding, but that would be a study for another time. What I want to talk to you about here this morning comes from verse number 10. And I want to talk to you about the resurrection and your relationship with Christ. Would you join me as we pray and ask that the Lord would bless this time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for the salvation that you have paid for and provided on the cross of Calvary. We thank you that that empty tomb represents that death could not keep you because none of Uh, You didn't die because of your own sin. Lord, the wages of sin is death, but you never sinned. But you bore our sins upon Calvary's cross. The Bible teaches us explicitly that you were three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And on the third morning, uh, Lord, you resurrected and you ascended up to heaven. And we thank you that you are at the right hand of the throne of God, you make intercession for your saints. And Lord, we ask you now that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, thank you for each and every one that is come. Thank you for all that are tuning in through live stream. Only the Holy Spirit can meet the needs here today. I know sometimes Easter is a religious day and we we come and we check it off of our list, but I pray that today would be a special day for someone Lord, that they would experience the power of the resurrection in their heart and in their life today. Use us here today. Help us to present these truths with clarity. Above all, may the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit bless the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I've already mentioned, today we celebrate the most significant, important and life-changing event in all of human history, the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a joy 
Now, I'm a little bit quiet about this here today because I'm just a little bit, I'm not melancholy, but it's just a very sombering truth to think about what Jesus did for us on the cross. I'm rejoicing in my heart, but this is a very serious topic that we're talking about. It reminds me of some very serious things, some very profound things, I should say, that God has done in my life. And if you're a born-again Christian, then I'm sure that you probably at least somewhat feel the same way. Now, Paul makes it clear in the verse that we just read that this event is very personal and practical. It's not just merely a religious belief or teaching. Yes, there were numerous eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said that he was seen after the resurrection of over 500 brethren at once. Peter said that I saw him, and James saw him, and so the apostles, they saw him after the resurrection, but 500 people saw him at one time. That would hold up in any court of law, even in New York. Yes, there is apologetic proof of the bodily resurrection, but to those of us that have been born again, there can be no lasting doubt. I know that believers, sometimes we have our moments of doubt, kind of like John the Baptist did when he was in prison. He sent one of his disciples and sent him to Jesus and said, Art thou he that should come, or should we look for another? This is the same John the Baptist that baptized Jesus and saw the Holy Spirit descend in bodily shape as a dove. He saw something very miraculous, and he heard that voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But later on in life, during a dark time, he had his doubts. But really, anyone who's truly been regenerated and saved... Those doubts are not lasting because there is an undeniable proof, just like we sang just a few minutes ago, He lives, I know He lives because He lives in my heart. I know what He's done for me. I know what I once was, and I know what He has made me to be. I know how He's changed my heart. He's changed my desires. He's a very personal and a very practical God. Now, Paul made it clear that his relationship with Christ was not because of his identification with any particular religion or pedigree. In fact, look at verse 4 through 6 of Philippians 3. He said, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He's saying, I got a better pedigree religiously than you do. He said, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law. He said, I was a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He wasn't a half-hearted believer. Paul didn't do anything half-hearted. When he decided that he believed something, he jumped in with both feet. I wish there were more Christians that would have the same attitude as Paul. It's like, hey, Jesus is my Savior. I believe I'm going to jump in with both feet. Verse number 6, he says, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law. Notice he says, blameless. Oh, I could never say that, could you? 
But Paul could honestly say, look, if you examine my life based on the Old Testament Scripture, you're not going to find any fault. Blameless. If anyone had a religious pedigree or an identification or something that they could boast in and claim that that's where my relationship with Christ lies, Paul would be the one. But Paul says, I count them all but dung that I may win Christ. What was he focusing on? He was focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Wesley, who was a preacher's son. He was a preacher himself. He was a member of Oxford's Holy Club. Back in the day, Oxford was a very, very scripturally minded. There was some godly preachers that came out of Oxford. And he was part of a religious group called the Holy Club. I mean, these were the zealots. These were the ones that were on fire for God. John Wesley was a part of that. He was a missionary to Georgia. He was religious, but he was also self-righteous and he was empty inside according to his own testimony. In May of 1738, he attended a religious meeting on Aldersgate Street in London. And it was there that he trusted Christ alone for his salvation. By the way, Jesus didn't die on the cross to help you be saved. He doesn't need your help. He died on the cross for our uttermost salvation. Listen, if you're trusting in Jesus plus being a pretty good person, you're going to miss the boat. You're going to miss heaven because we cannot be good enough. Jesus died on the cross and what he did for us on the cross of Calvary is sufficient all by itself. Until we get to the point where we're willing to humble ourselves and realize that the very best that we can be is filthy rags in the sight of an holy God. We need the blood of Jesus Christ. We need God's righteousness. We need God's salvation until we come to the point like John Wesley did in trusting Christ alone for salvation. We're going to be lost and hell bound and not heaven bound. Listen, there, there, is, there is so many people that are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. That's the distance between what they know and what they believe from the heart. When we believe something from the heart, it's a life-changing experience. When we believe from the heart, the Holy Spirit comes inside and regenerates us and changes our life. It was after this experience at Aldersgate Street in London that His heart and life and ministry was forever changed. As I think about our text here, I just want to focus on what the Word of God says here. Look with me once again at verse number 10. It says that I may know Him. The first point that I want to bring out this morning is you can't know Christ until He first knows you. Someone said, It's not what you know, it's who you know. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Would you hold your place here in Philippians 3 and turn over to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter number 7. And you know, I I think we have to be careful as Christians 
that we start analyzing everyone else's testimony. Listen, I look back at the time when I was a teenager, when I was in high school, and, and you know, if you would have asked me when I was in high school, are you a Christian, are you saved? I would have said without any fear of contradiction, I wouldn't have hesitated. I would have said, yes, I've been saved. And I would have told you how that I went forward in an evangelistic crusade when I was five years old, and I believed in Jesus Christ. I trusted Him as my Savior. I bowed down there and I prayed and asked Him to be my Savior. I was sincere and genuine. And looking back, looking back, I I really believe that I got saved as a five-year-old boy. But there's probably never a time that I thank God for my salvation and I reminisce and five years old, I don't remember I have no vivid, detailed memories of what I was thinking or what I was feeling. I remember it enough to know that it happened, to know that I was genuine, that I wasn't trying to impress anyone. I wasn't trying to get attention. And I remember that I genuinely wanted Jesus Christ to be my Savior. But childhood conversions can be a little bit confusing you know, I, I started growing up and I started learning some things and I started kind of understanding who I was a little bit more. And so there were times when I wanted to make sure where I would pray again. But by the time that I hit my high school years as a teenager, I got, I got discouraged at Christianity. I got discouraged by church and by church leaders and professing Christians. And I saw a lot of things and And that discouragement led to bitterness, and that bitterness led to going away from the Lord and not living the life of a Christian. Oh, at home, I would be try to be a good boy. I was never disrespectful to my parents, and I always tried to hide my sin life, and I tried to sneak around and do what I wanted to do. But there was something that was different in my life that I recognized very vividly between me and all of the buddies, when we would be doing things that I knew were wrong, I'd be, I never would express it usually, but something inside of me was just eating me up. And I felt so out of place, and I was under conviction. There would be times when God would take me behind His woodshed, and I, and I knew that He was trying to get my attention. And I got right with the Lord in 1986, and when I got right with the Lord, that's when I think the salvation, I personally believe I got saved when I was five, but I, I, you know, if I get to heaven and find out that I got saved when I was 19, the Lord knows that I've had those question marks. You know, the Lord says vividly, specifically I should say, to suffer little children to come unto Christ and forbid them not. That's what I was allowed to come to Jesus because I wanted to come to Jesus. But I knew when I was 19, I knew that I needed to get right with God. God was doing something. It wasn't the preacher preaching. It wasn't my mom nagging at me. It was nothing like that. I knew she was praying for me. And I knew my dad wanted me to live a Christian life. I knew all of those things. I'd had warnings and I'd had friendships, but I tell you what was doing the work in my heart was something that I couldn't shake. And it was God speaking in here. And God changed my life at that moment. It was a powerful, powerful thing. 
Here in Matthew chapter number 7, look at verse number 18. This is Jesus speaking. Now in verse 15, he said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. He said, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. You know, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, then your life is as a tree, and if you're truly a Christian, you're going to bring forth Christian fruit in your life. If you're not a Christian, then the tree's going to bring forth corrupt fruit. If you're a Christian, you're going to love righteousness. You're going to love the things that God loves. If you're not a Christian, you're going to love the things that the world loves. And there's going to, I'm not saying that our human nature as Christians doesn't still desire those temptations or we're not subject to those temptations, but you at least have that struggle going on between the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you and those old natural tendencies that you still have, and you'll have them until you die or get raptured. But Jesus is making it clear that there's a distinguishing difference between people who are saved and people who are not saved. He said in verse 18, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. You know what Jesus is saying here? I think there's an element of chastisement in that, but ultimately every tree is going to be judged. And the bad trees are going to be cut down and cast into the fire. You know what that fire is? That's hell. That's not a place that you want to go. It's not going to be a party, by the way. It's going to be a place of darkness. It's going to be a place of suffering and thirst. It's going to be a place of regret and memories. Looking back on your life and thinking about listening to this message here today and saying, why did I ignore it? Why did I space it off? Why did I delay and procrastinate? Listen, if you go to hell and don't listen to the gospel message for whatever excuses that you have, you're not going to be you're not going to be justifying or making your excuses in hell. You're going to be knowing that I blew it and I wish that I would have been smart enough and humble enough to listen to the word of God. Verse 20, wherefore by their fruits you shall know them. Not every one, he says in verse 21, that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Listen, saying the sinner's prayer, coming forward in an invitation, there's no magical thing in praying that prayer. It's got to be something that comes from the heart. Faith comes from the heart, not just from some canned prayer that somebody told us that we're supposed to repeat. He says in verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. You know, here's these that are talking to the Lord, and they're giving him their pedigree. Didn't we do this? I went to church faithfully. I got baptized. 
I was a member. I gave money. I served. I taught a Sunday school class. All of these things we could say, but the Lord says none of that matters. He said, I never knew you. Our point is very specific that you can't know Christ unless He first knows you. It's not what we know about or who we know about. It's does He know you? If He knows you, He desires a personal relationship with you. You'll have a relationship with Jesus Christ if He knows you. If He doesn't know you, you can try through religious deeds. You can do all kinds of things. You can justify it, make excuses in your mind, but you're going to know down deep that I don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship is when we relate to one another. We communicate. We listen. We follow. Relationships have an impact in our life. They have an influence in our life. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, He is influencing your life in a very dynamic way. I never knew you, He says. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And then He goes on to, in verse 24 through the end of the verse, talking about the wise man who built his house. He says in verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine... And do with them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And then those who hear the sayings of Jesus, but don't do anything about them, that's the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms of life come, that house is going to fall. I hope that you can recognize here this stern warning that Jesus is giving but he's giving it with compassion. He's not saying that I want to say to you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. What he's saying, he's giving us this message so that people will recognize that I need to get rid of this flimsy profession that I have and I need to get the real deal. I need to get a relationship with Jesus Christ. Although he was a Jewish man, Dr. Arthur Burns... He was former chair of the Federal Reserve Board back in 1970s. He agreed to join a White House Bible study, but since he was Jewish, the other members of the study were afraid to ask him to pray at the end of their time together. One day, a guest leader asked Dr. Burns to pray. To everyone's surprise, Arthur Burns stood up and began to pray. Listen to what he said. Oh, God... May the day come when all Muslims will come to know Jesus, and when all Jews will come to know Jesus, and when all Christians will come to know Jesus. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You'll never know him until he first knows you. Secondly, I'd like to draw your attention back to Philippians chapter 3, verse number 10. I want to point out that the resurrection is a personal experience. It's not just something that took place a little over 2,000 years ago. I've been to Israel. I went to the Garden Tomb. They call it Gordon's Calvary. And I don't know if it's the exact place. There's a lot of biblical evidence that points to that being the place called Golgotha. You can see the skull on the side of the mountain 
You can picture in your mind the three crosses right up above it. There's a garden tomb nearby. And there's also a, a, a large cistern that shows that this garden was the garden of a wealthy man. We have Bible evidence as to the location. And there at Gordon's Calvary, uh, just outside of Jerusalem, there is a garden tomb. And they've got a big stone. And there's like a trough that that round stone that's been hewn, it can roll back and forth to cover the opening of that cave that's been uh, carved out of that side of that mountain. As you go in there, you can see where there were two places where, that were made for a body to lay. I, I walked inside of that tomb, and I'm looking at this place, and I'm thinking, wouldn't it be awesome if this is the actual place where Jesus Christ, his body laid and where the, he was resurrected from the dead and the stone was rolled away. I, I thought that would be an awesome and, and it could be. I, I don't know that. But it was an interesting and a meaningful thought just to think that, hey, I could literally be touching the place where the body of Jesus Christ lay, where perhaps maybe some blood had dripped on that stone and just thinking that that may be the case that the creator of the universe laid there in his body for three days and three nights. But it's more than just an event in history. It's personal. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Listen, the rolling away of the stone is not what freed Jesus from the tomb. You find that in his resurrected body, he was able to walk through walls and doors. He could have walked out of there. A resurrected body, you don't, we're not limited to the physicality of this world. But it wasn't there. It was an outward, visible demonstration of what had already taken place on the inside. You know, that reminds me of Romans 6, 4. Where the Bible says, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. By the way, this isn't talking about water here, okay? This is an immersion into the death of Christ. This is something that takes place on the inside. Water baptism is just a picture on the outside of what God has done on the inside. Buried with him by baptism into death. That, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. What an amazing, powerful, personal experience to experience that power of the resurrection in our life. I remember, I, I mentioned to you my testimony. I, I didn't, I, that may have happened to me when I was five, but a five-year-old's not going to experience and understand all of, about that. But when I got right with God at 19, I'm telling you, this was a personal thing, and I experienced the power of the resurrection. I can't tell you how many times I tried to stop sinning. I tried, and I tried, and I failed, and I failed, and I was getting to the point where there's no hope for me. And until... I truly started trusting Christ and I came to him and I said, God, I can't do it. I want to be right with you. I need you, God. Would you forgive me? Would you help me? And God started miraculously changing my life. 
Listen, it was a powerful experience. It was personal. Paul experienced the same thing. He went through a perse- from a persecutor of Christians to the Damascus Road when God struck him dead or <laughs> struck him down and caused blindness, struck him dead. <laughs> get this tongue working, get this brain processing. God struck him down on the road to Damascus. And he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Saul turned his heart by faith to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ revolutionized his life. Listen, one of the greatest signs that we are in the last days, (laughs) it's not the Democratic Party, all right? It's, it's not the, 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 the DA in Manhattan, all right? It's not any, the, one of the biggest signs from the Bible that we are in the last days is 2 Timothy 3 5 that says in the last days there's going to be a having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. You know, we, this world has Millions upon millions of people who profess to be Christian. This nation, our country, has thousands upon thousands of people that identify as evangelical Christians. But look around. What influence do we have on our culture? We don't have any influence. Listen, the culture used to look at Christians and used to respect them. They may not have liked them. They may not have agreed with them, but they respected them. The world doesn't respect respect modern Christianity. Modern Christianity has fallen all over themselves to be just like the world. Oh, we're going to reach them by... They're going to think we're so cool and awesome that they're going to want to be like us. That's not Christianity at all. It's a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. It doesn't need music. It doesn't need entertainment. It doesn't need emotional manipulation or worldly charisma. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Doesn't matter your nationality or ethnicity or your religious affiliation. If you're a sinner and you're willing to admit it and confess it and turn to Jesus Christ, He'll save you and He will give you that powerful understanding of what the gospel can do. It's a powerful message. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all you need to be saved. You don't need me. You don't need us. You just need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my last point this morning, number three, is intimacy with Christ requires discomfort. I, I hate to tell you that. I don't enjoy telling you that, but it's the truth. And by the grace of God, you're in a place that you're always going to hear the truth. The good, the bad, the ugly. We're not going to cherry pick and just tell you all of the sweet, kind little things that everybody wants to hear. We're going to tell you what the book says, just like Jesus did. We're going to tell you how wonderful heaven is, but we're going to warn you how horrible hell is. 
We're going to tell you how wonderful it is to live a Christian life in righteousness and holiness, but we're going to tell you how wicked you are if you're living in sin and contrary to the Word of God. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what Christians are supposed to be. If you are saved and Christ knows you, you've experienced the resurrection power, and so you have a relationship with Him, do you want that relationship to be intimate? Do you want it to be close? Do you want to really know Him like Paul said? It's going to require some discomfort because Paul said the fellowship of His sufferings. I don't like to suffer. I'm a wimp. I really am. I mean, I I tried to, we were at a birthday party yesterday, and I tried to play basketball for the first time in like 15 years. It was so sad and pitiful. I'm serious. It was bad. It was ugly. I fell and I hurt my knee. Can I hear an ooh, ah? Oh, I did. I hurt my knee. I woke up this morning. My back hurt. Even even my right big toe, I don't know what happened to that. Really, I have no idea. I'm, I just it was ugly, wasn't it? Don't you can you can be honest. It, it was ugly. I don't like pain and suffering. I, I I don't like I don't like emotional suffering. I don't like sleepless nights of worrying and stressing and anxiety and hurt and grief. I had many sleepless nights as. You know, we we lose people that we love. People go through heartache and sorrow and all of those things. I, I don't enjoy those things. But God's been good to me. He's blessed me with a wonderful family, a wonderful wife, a wonderful church. I mean, we I look at so many people that I love, and I know that most of you love me. I think so, maybe. I hope so. That's a wonderful thing. The blessings of God are wonderful, but, you know, no offense, the blessings have not really helped me be close and intimate with Jesus Christ. The rejections have. The suffering has. He was a man that was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. He was a man that was rejected. And I think oftentimes when I'm going through someone hurting me, somebody betraying me, and I think, oh, it's the end of the world. I'll I'll never be able to come through this. And my Savior starts speaking to my heart and says, now do you understand what I went through? And then I really feel like a wimp. Because what I'm going through can't even compare to what he's went through. And I start saying, wow, Lord, you really are a wonderful Savior. You you went through all of this, not... You know, sometimes we bring our own grief and sorrow upon us, don't we? He never did. And he did it for me and he did it for you. What a wonderful Savior. I'm telling you, it is it is great to know the Lord. And I don't know... I've what I did with my notes. I'm not done yet. I put them up. I've never done that before. Never. Some of you are like, put them up. (laughs) 
Notice that Paul says the fellowship of his sufferings. Our sufferings may help us relate to him, but Paul's saying the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, back in, back in the day, some of you uh, people that are my age or older, you remember Fram Oil Filters had a slogan. They said, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. How many of you know, remember that one? All right, all you bunch of old fogies. <laughs> well, you know, there is a lot of truth to that. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. Jesus taught that a relationship with him is not going to make us popular or accepted by the world. He told the story in Luke 16 about a rich man who he had everything in this world. And it it doesn't say that he was a wicked man. It just says that he was a rich man that ignored the Bible. And Lazarus was a poor beggar that just wanted some crumbs from the rich man's table. They both died. And Jesus said that the rich man ended up in hell. He was he had a comfortable life, but he ended up in hell being tormented. Lazarus had a very uncomfortable life, but he trusted God and he followed the word of God and he ended up in paradise and he was comforted. There's, you know, you can pay me now or you can pay me later, God says. You can have it your way. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Luke 12, verse number 20, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Once again, here's a wealthy man that is just building bigger barns and planting more crops and just doing all of that. He wasn't wicked and evil. He was a good guy, good businessman. But he lived his life without God, without Jesus Christ being the most important thing to him. Intimacy with Christ requires some discomfort. As I conclude here this morning, it says, the last part of verse number 10, being made conformable unto his death. To conform is to be made to resemble or assume the same form. We know what conforming is. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says to us Christians that we're supposed to be not conformed to this world. That's one of the basic principles of living the Christian life. We're to... Uh, we're to come out from among them and be separate, not be like the world. We're supposed to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We're teaching in our young adult Sunday school class what the Scripture says, how that we are supposed to be more and more like Jesus and less like us every day. It's called the sanctification process. But to conform is to assume the same form. What? What were the significant factors of Jesus' death? Well, it was providential. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't coincidental that they hung him on the cross. It, it, listen, it wasn't the Roman soldiers or the Jews that were to blame. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God which lay, which, uh, taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus laid down his life as a sacrificial lamb. He could have called ten legions of angels to rescue him. He, he was, he had control. 
but he relinquished that control willingly because it was a providential death. It was all about humility. Philippians 2 verse number 8 says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It wasn't a Roman spear that killed him. He wasn't strangled. He wasn't murdered. He was hung on the cross. The death of that cross was a specific providential thing. And it was a surrender of his personal will. Paul said being made conformable to his death. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed just just hours before he knew that he would hang on the cross. And by the way, I'm not minimizing the physical suffering of Jesus. It was brutal. Isaiah said his visage was so marred more than the sons of man. What they did to him physically with the nails and the whips and the cross and all of that, it's physically, we can't, I can't even fathom it. But the real suffering of Jesus was there on the cross when he said in an agony, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When God the Father turned his back on his beloved son, why did he do that? Because the scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. At that moment of space and time on the cross of Calvary, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And when God looked down upon his son who was righteous in his own deeds, he saw the sins of all the human race bearing on Jesus Christ, and God had to turn his back and forsake his son. And Jesus, that's the first time in eternity past and the only time in eternity future that God the Father will ever have turned his back and rejected his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he was suffering for you and I on the cross of Christ. We take sin like it's no big deal. And all of that caused our Savior, the one who loves us, it caused him more suffering there on that cross. A surrender. He said in the garden, if it be possible, Lord, let this cup pass. I don't want to go through with this. He was, he was a, he was God, but he was also man and he was dreading it. He was dreading that hour and it was time. And he said, is there any way He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Paul's talking about our relationship with Jesus Christ through the resurrection, being made conformable to his death. We whine and we complain. We make excuses for not serving God, for not loving God, for not trusting God. And all the while, if we would focus on what Jesus did for us, how can you mistrust or even reject someone who did what he did for you and I. Do you have a real relationship with Christ? Does he know you? Have you experienced the resurrection? Are you willing to experience some discomfort? Just want to be accepted and loved by the world? Have at it. 
you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Are you willing to put your life in his hands? Ladies and gentlemen, this is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. It's personal and it's practical. If you're not saved, don't you just want to get saved today? You ought to. You ought to just forget about the past, forget about yesterday, and just get born again today so that you can experience the power of the resurrection.